0: Okay, we want to welcome those who are joining us online. This is uh, July 7th, 2023, and uh, we are still in the book of Romans. And today we move to chapter 7. So, so far in this study of Romans, we've uh, talked a lot about the gift of justification, haven't we? And how that's really the foundation for our Christian life. Then we moved on to the process of sanctification. We're still talking about that and actually we spent a, quite a bit of time, I think it was five weeks, in Romans 6. And uh, sanctification is growing in our calling to be holy. And we've kind of said, that's where a lot of Christians, they kind of get stuck. You know, they, they have a heart to serve God, but they just it just seems kind of hard at times. So, Romans 6, 7 and 8, we're talking about that. Now, in some ways, chapter 7 seems misplaced. You know, it's, uh, um, however, we know that God doesn't make a mistake. He has everything, he does everything for a reason. And chapter 7 is no exception. But you could probably look at it this way. It's sort of like a parenthesis in the whole flow of the book of Romans, okay? You know, he says, okay, stop. Let's kind of talk about something real quick, and then let's kind of jump back in in Romans 8. And uh, I think this chapter, it makes a lot of sense. when We realize that Paul, in chapter 7, is addressing those who have been under the law. In fact, verse 1, it kind of says, Or do you not know, brethren? For I'm speaking to those who know the law. So for those who are Gentiles, this chapter doesn't quite seem to have the punch that maybe it would have if you were Jews who had just kind of come out of of uh, you know following the law and, and having great reverence for the law. Now, uh, so because of that, we're gonna we're gonna take we're gonna do all of chapter seven in one week today. Okay. We should be finished by 4 o'clock this afternoon. No. (laughs) Just want to make sure everyone's... No. But really, that doesn't mean... Because we're doing it in one week, doesn't mean that it doesn't need to be studied. And I encourage you to read over this chapter maybe once or twice before next week. Okay? We're not going to read through every verse. But I'm going to give you the main idea or ideas here. And there is some important things truths that I think we all need to know okay so this chapter deals with the law which we kind of know of as being in the Old Testament and um, and the message of Romans 7 is that we've been set free from the law and for a lot of God-fearing Jews who saw Jesus as the Messiah they had this question well wait a minute, what about the law? We've, we've been too attached to it. It's, it's part of who we are. It's part of our culture. And we've been set free from that. So he sort of addresses, you know, this whole issue here. And uh, so let's talk a little bit about the law and how the Jews of Jesus' time saw it. And by the way, there's still many Jews today who see it this way. Okay, first of all, we need to recognize that for the Jew the law had always been at the very center of their understanding of God. The law had been, it was holy, it had been king, more or less. It was through the law that God revealed himself. Now, of course, later we realize that under the new covenant, Jesus writes his law on our hearts. But there was still, there wasn't quite that understanding for all, a lot of the Jewish believers at this time. And, uh, and the law was something they had studied, they had memorized, they had written on their walls, they had, uh, they had, they had, had it engraved in their clothing, written in their clothing. It was like, it was, it was king, you know. And, uh, and so for Paul... And the other apostles to talk about, we've been set free from the law. They thought, wait, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you telling us that everything we believed in isn't true? And so Paul is explaining this. Now, maybe we should kind of mention two here. And this is very simplified. But there are two aspects of the law there is the ceremonial part of the law, you know, the, the, the sacrifices temple worship, all the offerings, the anointings. I mean, they anointed every little utensil that was in the holy place and in the, and, uh, and then in the court and all that. That was all the ceremonial law. But there's also the moral law, you know, how to live. And by the way, a lot of that law, uh, many governments today, you know, were kind of based somewhat on that law. You know, the Ten Commandments, for example. You know those were the those were the ten big ones. You know, and you know don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't lie, honor your parents. You know those are those are all important things, and they're still important things. Um, but there are more laws besides that. In fact, the Jewish rabbis, in going through the Old Testament law, they came up with six hundred and thirteen laws or commandments that they had to that they had to uh, obey. And you might say, well, how could they even remember them? Well, that was part of the problem, you know. <laughs> they couldn't. Although a lot, of, a lot of the good Jews, they would memorize them. But just because you memorize it doesn't mean you obey them. And I'm not going to go into what all those laws were. You can read the Old Testament. Uh, Jesus, by the way, someone asked him, well, which is the greatest of all these laws? And, uh, You know, because there's 613 and we know the story. Jesus said, well, they could... The first one is love your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And the second one is love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said, really, the whole law could be summarized in those two things. And the religious leaders, they were kind of like, wait a minute, wait a minute. What about the other 611 of them? (laughs) You know, are you just ignoring them? And so Jesus... He saw that this was a system that was burdensome on the people. In fact, a lot of times, people would just kind of checked out. He said, I, 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 can't even, I can't even memorize them, much less follow them. And so I just can't do it. And so Jesus, in his teachings, a lot of people, they gathered around. And of course, the religious leaders and the Pharisees, like, wait a minute, who is this? Because everyone was listening to him. Because when he said something like, oh, all the law could be summed up in these two commandments, hey, that's something they could, they could say, yeah, I, I, I get that. I can understand that. So, um, so anyway, so one of the things that when Jesus comes and when the church begins, the apostolic teaching you know, went out and said that Jesus had fulfilled or completed the law. And that was a difficult transition for Jewish believers in Jesus. What do you mean he fulfilled it? He completed it. But the ceremonial law, that was was hard enough to understand that he fulfilled it. But he was. He was the sacrifice. He is the temple. He's everything. He fulfilled all of it. And I really, personally, I enjoy reading the Old Testament and seeing how Jesus was fulfilled in all that. And, but it was a difficult transition for many of the Jewish believers. And then when it came to the moral law, well, what about that? And he completed that or fulfilled that too as a well, Let me explain. First of all, when Jesus talked about the law, if anything, he just raised the standard. We talked about this a little bit last week. He said, oh yeah, you've heard that the law says don't commit adultery. Well, I tell you, don't even lust for a woman in your heart because that's committing adultery. And then he would say, you've heard it said, don't murder. But I tell you, if you're angry with your brother or if you call your brother Raka, which means empty head. We might have different words for Raka, but we probably, you know, we use them, you know. Oh yeah, he's a, idiot. He's kind of a, you know, you know he says, you, you commit murder already. And, uh, and then on the Sermon on the Mount, he, he ends it by kind of saying, unless your righteousness surpasses that of all the scribes and Pharisees, you won't enter into the kingdom of God. <sighs> what? I mean, Jesus messed with the law. You know, he kind of raised it in one hand. He raised it to impossible situations. But he also let us know that he frees us from the yoke of the law, you know, of the bondage of the law, the bondage that says that we have to please him in what we do and how good we are. Because it's impossible, isn't it? In fact, part of what he did at the cross is that he became the perfect righteousness for us. He looks down and says, my lost cause, he'll never be righteous, but I'll be righteous for him. And Jamie, she's a real lost cause too. And so is Stephanie in a meal car and Elizabeth. In fact, all of you are, but I will become their righteousness, their perfect righteousness. That's what he did at the cross. So he lifts the yoke from us that we don't have to bear it anymore. Like, I got to be good enough or I'm not going to make it to heaven. He took that away. So yes, he completed the law. He fulfilled it. And so Paul in chapter 7 is trying to get this across to the Jews, the Jewish believers especially, who they had accepted Jesus as Messiah, but they were having a hard time. Well, what about all the cultural things about our law? What about this? What about that? And also, he realized that it was easy to settle back, and even for us, into a religious or a law-oriented view of God. Because in some ways, it's easier. You know, uh, you know, instead of focusing on our heart, just tell me what i got to do and what I can't do. I want it simple. And it's easy to drift back to that. And really for Christians even today. So much of Christianity over the centuries has promoted that view of God, that God is, accepts us when we do good. And when we do bad, He rejects us. And, and in human thinking, that sounds right because that's the way we kind of treat one another, but God sees it entirely differently. And by the way, I'm not just talking about, let's say, those who grew up in a Catholic, you know, religion. I think there are many evangelicals, too, have grown up thinking that Christianity is what we do and what we don't. And what we can't. And it's rules and expectations. Sometimes we say, well, it's not a rule, it's just an expectation. Same thing, really. And sadly, that's the way a lot of the world views us. Because we've been acting that way. The world sees it that way. You know, yeah, well, Christians, you know, they can't do this, they can't do that. Now, it may be true, they don't want to do certain things. And there is the obedience, which we've talked about, even last week. But it's more of a relationship with them. God's people are not trying to perform to get God's favor. That's not the true gospel. Watchman Nee, I like his books. He was a man in China, Christian leader in China in the early 1900s. Died as a martyr, by the way. But he wrote, grace means that God does something for me. Law means that I do something for God. Do you get that? And if I try to do something for God, how does that, how does that work out? Not too good, right? <laughs> we just can't do it. I may have good intentions, but I just can't do it. You know? But grace says God did it for me. He became my righteousness. He, he, he does everything I can't do. And so the law represents a mindset. A way of looking at God that's faulty. That I need to please Him. I need to be better. I need to be better. In the first six verses of Romans seven, let's kind of—we're not going to read all of chapter seven, but let's read this these six verses because it's an illustration. Let me kind of read it. Or do you not know, brethren? For I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning her husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you were made to die to the law, Through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who is raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions, which were aroused by the law, were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the law. Okay, so remember we talked about this in Romans 6. We died with Christ, right? And so we're therefore free from the old master, the law. And now we've been joined to another, it says in verse 4. In order what? That we may bear fruit. See, Jesus move the emphasis. The law said, you've got to do things to please God. Jesus said, follow me and obey me in order to bear fruit. You see the difference? It's a big difference. And somehow, even Christians today, we, we've got this religious mindset that we have to please God. We really He's done it for us. So now we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. Now, one of the questions might be, well, why was the law written in the first place if we really need to die to it? And he addresses that. And he addresses that, especially in verses 7 through 13. We're not going to read it, but a lot of this chapter... And we can see, yeah, the law was there for a purpose. Like look at verse five. It says, for while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions, which were aroused by the law. So sinful pra- passions were aroused by the law. And, you, you know, we all know that. If someone says, if you say something to, like to a child, don't touch that. What are they going to do? I think I need to touch it, <laughs> you know. And when we kind of read in the law, don't do this. Hmm, I wonder why, you know. And we just, it's just our flesh. We just want to do something we can't, we're not supposed to do, you know. And, uh, and so the sinful passions were aroused by the law. Then in verse eight, it says, um, but sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, Produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. So, so it's saying right here that sin takes opportunity through the law. And the example Paul gives, and by the way, in another place, Paul says, you know, before I met Christ, I was compared to most people, I was a pretty righteous person. I mean, all 613 laws I knew by heart, and I was. I made it my goal to follow all of them, but basically here in another place, he kind of said, but there's one law especially I just never could get over, and that's coveting. You know what coveting is? Want something you don't have, and you know, we always kind of want something we don't have, right? You know, and uh, not always, but it happens periodically, and Paul said, you know, whenever I think about that, I, (laughs) I just couldn't, I just couldn't get righteous, And so he felt guilty and condemned because he was preaching the law, but he couldn't really practice it. So sin takes opportunity through the law. And then in verse 13, I like this, it says, uh, (coughs) at the end, it says, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. In other words, it's like a mirror that highlights everything that's wrong. You know, we read the scriptures and we think, oh man, I messed up there. Oh no, what, rejoice always? Uh, Give thanks in everything? Wait a minute, forgive everybody? And, And You know, the more I read God's word, it's just almost like my sin becomes utterly more sinful. And, and you might say, well, wait a minute. If the law shows us how sinful we are, so utterly sinful, is, is that good? Yes, it is good. Because what? It leads us to Jesus. It leads us to the conclusion that I need help. I can't do this. And, uh, and so the purpose, one of the primary purposes of the law Yes, it did serve a purpose. It's good, it's holy, it's just, but it's to lead us to Jesus and to grace. And so Paul, in this chapter, he's saying, we're free from the law, because if we're free from the law, then we can be free to really serve him and obey him. Yes, the law served a purpose, mainly to show us how needy we are and how much we need Christ. So this is a very important, you kind of see this is especially important for the Jews that were believing in Jesus, but really for all of us, because all of us tend to kind of want to reduce Christianity to what, what can I do? What can I do? How can I please God? And we get, it's so easy to drift into that. And so Romans 7 is a reminder Wait a minute, that's not what this is about. The last part of really verses 14 through 25, and I encourage you to read it, especially before next week when we start Romans 8. You'll identify with it. It's a great description of the inner conflict inside of us that all of us ex- have experienced from one time to another. Let me just, I don't think we have these up here, but let me just kind of read a couple verses. Like, look at verse 19. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. Have you ever felt that way? You probably have. Wait a minute. I want to do good, but I just can't seem to do it, you know? Or verse 20. But if I'm doing the very thing that I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sandwich dwells in me. And then verse 21. I find in the principle that evil is present in me. There's something bad inside of me. There's evil inside of me. The one who wants to do good. And so there's a conflict. I want to do good, but there's something kind of evil inside of me. Have you ever felt that way? I know you have. You don't have to raise your hands because it's part of being a human. And uh, verse 22, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. In other words, Yeah, I agree with this. We should love one another. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. He describes this conflict, doesn't he? And it's a conflict that all of us face. We want to do what's right, but we just can't seem to do it. And by the way, even non-believers... Many of them want to do what's right, but they just say, I can't do it. It's impossible. There's something inside of me won't let me. You know, years ago, there was a, a little phrase. You still hear it every now and then. You'd see it on T-shirts and stuff like this. The devil made me do it. You know, and, and what were they? Everyone ever seen that before, you know? And basically what they're really saying is that I kind of like to be good. But there's something inside of me that just won't let me. It's my flesh. I was born into flesh. And so this is this tension, this conflict that's going on. And it was true before we made, we came to know the Lord. And actually, once we kind of come to the Lord, it becomes more true. Because we really want to do good now. And we really see that we can't do good. So sin, it says, working in conjunction with the law keeps us from the victorious life that we know that God has called us to. Sin traps us, leaving us with the following conclusion. I have good intentions, but I fail miserably when I determine to serve God. And I've heard many people say this. The more I try to serve God, the worse I fail. I mean, I've heard that. I wish I had a, a dollar for every time I've heard that. You know, I hear it a lot, you know. And, uh, uh, and for those of us who are not truly regenerated and for those of us who are, we've got to understand that there's power in the gospel to release us from this. Let's put it this way. You know what the message of Romans 7 is? I can't do it. Why? I'm flesh. I'm bound to fail over and over. However, we know that if I've died in Christ, I can be married to another called grace. And I can begin to see it differently. But chapter 8 starts explaining this. Chapter 8 tells us how we can break free from this inner conflict. Because see. We can kind of get our hands around. The gift of justification. Thank you Lord. You've declared me righteous. And then the, the process of sanctification. Yes Lord I want to be like you. I want to be holy like you've called me to. And then it seems like. There's this conflict that goes on inside of. us. We just can't seem to do it. So Romans 8 pulls it all together. And we're going to spend a lot of time in Romans 8 because I think that's probably where most of us are. So Romans 7, what's the message? I can't do it. You know, I cannot bear any fruit. Not any true fruit. I can't please God in my flesh. Never. I can't bear fruit on my own. And that's what Jesus called me to do. And of course, we know John 15, Jesus talks about this. He says, only by abiding in Christ and allowing him to live in me can I ever bear any true fruit. Many Christians burn out and fail when trying to serve God in their own power. It's serving him according to Romans 7, in the spirit of the law. It won't work. It never has. Don't even try to do it. You, you're not, you can't do it when there have been all sorts of, when there have been millions and millions of people throughout history who have tried to do it. So Romans 7 leads us to this conclusion, or the, really these conclusions. We can't. And we're going to find out sooner or later. I can't do it. And that's why we have to study Romans 8, okay? Okay, I want to end with a story about Hudson Taylor. He's my favorite missionary in the past. He lived in the 1800s. And uh, I've read his biography, I think, about 10 or 12 times. And it's two volumes. It's about this thick. You put them together. I just love his story. He was... um, he founded, he was a missionary to China. When he went there, not many were. He founded the China, China Inland Mission, and it became the largest mission organization in the world. Hudson Taylor was a gifted leader. He was a motivator. He was, he, uh, by the time he died, thousands, literally thousands of people had decided to go to China and live for Jesus and to share the gospel and, uh, and he's inspired many people. But when he was probably in his late 40s, maybe early 50s, he had a personal crisis. He found himself getting irritable, you know. He was demanding of others. He was annoyed by others. And he hated himself for it. And he felt condemned. And then he felt, then he felt like his joy went away. And he thought, God, you've called me to lead this mission. And I'm a reconciled. I'm miserable. You know? And he got to the place. He could hardly stand the saints because they just annoyed him. And, um, and I'll let you read the book to kind of see how it happened. But basically... He came to a revelation that I can't do this in myself. Jesus wants to live through me, you know? And he said immediately his joy returned. He felt like going around just hugging everybody. I love you. You don't annoy me anymore. You don't irritate me anymore. It's really beautiful. It's one of my favorite parts of his biography because it's like, yes, I see it. I see it now. It's so clear. Why didn't I see it before? And that's what all of us need to come to that conclusion. I can't do it. I've got to let Jesus flow through me. And it, he does that by his spirit. And that's what we want to kind of start looking at in Romans 8. Okay? So, we, uh, Romans 8 tells us how to rise above condemnation. Actually, verse 1 says, Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you see, and when we start talking about, it, we just see, yeah, a lot of us do feel we do walk under condemnation, but we've got to be free from that. Let's pray, Lord. We um, thank you for Romans seven, because Lord, it says what we've already kind of seen in Romans. We can't do this by ourselves. You have to do it through us. Lord, we recognize that even though we have good intentions, there's something inside. There's an evil inside of us, it seems like. And it just wants to kind of keep doing what's wrong. And Lord, we don't want to live this way. So there's this conflict. But Lord, we thank you that you have the answer to this dilemma, and it comes, it's part of the gospel that we're studying in this book of Romans, so Lord, we just ask right now that you would be preparing our hearts for these next four or five weeks, when we start looking at this beautiful chapter of Romans, thank you, Lord, amen.